I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. As you may know, our foundation has partnered with the Boston Public Schools Food and Nutrition Services Department to support the system's transformation away from prepackaged processed food, which is manufactured somewhere else in the country, to serving whole, real, delicious meals prepared every day in Boston schools. In BPS, 70% of students live at or below poverty, which qualifies Boston to receive a USDA subsidy that provides 100% free breakfast, lunch, and after-school snack for all 54,000 students. Moving away from manufactured food allows room in this budget to create three times as many food services jobs in BPS. It also allows food services the budget to purchase and serve a wide selection of fresh fruits, vegetables, meats, and grains from which students choose daily. When asked why we support this work, we talk about, aside from the obvious, which is that the kids love delicious food and they love choice, that we believe it is healthier. We've learned that talking about health and food at the same time can be complicated, and so I'm thrilled today to have a renowned physician, Dr. Mark Hyman, join me to talk about how food impacts humans, in particular, humans between the ages of zero and 20. Dr. Mark Hyman is a practicing family physician and an internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in the field of functional medicine. He is the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center, head of strategy and innovation at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, an 11-time New York Times bestselling author, including number one New York Times bestseller, Food, What the Heck Should I Eat?, and board president for clinical affairs for the Institute for Functional Medicine. He is the host of one of the leading health podcasts, The Doctor's Pharmacy. He's a regular medical contributor to several television shows and networks, including CBS This Morning, Today, Good Morning America, The View, and CNN. He is also an advisor and guest co-host on The Dr. Oz Show. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, I'm so happy to be here. This is great. Um, so as, as you know, we're working on school food. And so the most important question to me every day is, um, what should kids eat? So what do you think? Well, they should eat food. Miraculously <laughs> enough, that's what we're designed to eat. Uh-huh. Uh, except we are not feeding them food. We're feeding them highly processed industrial products that are full of ingredients that we know scientifically promote disease and impair learning and cognitive ability mood and behavior. So why would we be feeding our kids these compounds and expect them to do well in school? You know, there's this, there's this question about is a calorie a calorie? And, and I think that's maybe a hard thing to unpack, but I mean, can you simplify it for folks and, and just how should we be thinking about calories that are going into oh, our kids? Yeah, of course. It's not, it's not hard to unpack. It's, it's pretty obvious. Even if you're a, a five-year-old or a third grader, you can understand that you know, 46 ounces of soda or whatever is different than, you know, 20 cups of broccoli, right? Right. Even though they have the same calories, you know, if you take, you know, eight and a half cups of broccoli, that's equivalent to one soda. And that has zero teaspoons of sugar, whereas the soda has 10 teaspoons of sugar and 250 calories. They both have 250 calories. One's full of fiber, phytonutrients, vitamins and minerals, antioxidants. It is extremely low in sugar, high in fiber. Um, how is that the same in any realistic way than 250 calories of soda? And what people get confused about is that scientifically there is a law of physics. It's called the first law of thermodynamics. A little technical, but essentially it says that 
all energy is conserved in the system. So that's why people think all calories the same because if you take 250 calories of broccoli or 200 calories of soda, you burn them in a laboratory, they release the same amount of energy. Mm. And calories, the amount of energy that is required to raise one liter of water one degree centigrade. It's just a measure of energy. The problem is we are not a vacuum. Like if I, if I took a pound of feathers and a pound of lead and I dropped them off a George Washington Bridge, they would fall at different rates, even though they were the same weight because of something called air. If you drop in a vacuum, they drop at the same rate. So right. your metabolism is being affected by the quality of what you eat, how something raises your blood sugar, how it affects your hormones, how it affects your brain chemistry, how it affects your metabolism, how it affects your hunger. All of those are different depending on the quality of the calories. So quality of calories matters far more than quantity. If you focus on what to eat, you don't have to worry about how much or count calories. And this is really where the problem is. Do you and know I what the history you, of it is? Like, where did, why did, why is calories the, the thing that's biggest on the side of um, the nutritional information about any f- kind of food? Like, why is that the thing we worry about if it's not yeah, the thing well, we should be worried about? Well, the first department of nutrition in any academic center was at Harvard. Fred Stair was the head of it. And he received a $29 million in funding from the food industry, including soda manufacturers, junk food manufacturers, sugar sugar association to do research right. and his position was that all calories are the same. And I think the, the, this has been the view that has been sort of unquestioned in the last 50 years mm. uh, by the scientific community until recently when really profound experiments have been done by our friend and my colleague, Dr. David Ludwig yeah. and others looking at how in very tightly controlled experiments, when you feed one diet with the same calories, to a person, and then you switch into a different diet with the same calories, what happens? And there's a couple of interesting experiments. One, they took people who were uh, overweight, and they fed them a very high-fat, low-starch sugar diet versus a high-starch sugar diet. Not even sugar, but just high-carb starch diet Mm -hmm. and a very low-fat diet. It was exactly the same calories. And what they found was the ones who had the higher-fat, low-starch sugar diet burn 400 calories more a day, that alone would Mm. solve the entire obesity epidemic if everybody adopted that. And just to do the math, if you have 400 calories times 365 divided by 3,500, which is a pound, that's 41 pounds of weight loss just by eating the same amount of calories but switching the quality of what you're eating. And and tell me what they, so what were they eating exactly that was accomplishing this? Well, instead of having a diet that's high in carbohydrates and starch and sugar, which is what we feed our kids in school, yeah. um, they fed them a diet that was higher in fat. So it's olive oil, avocados, nuts and seeds, yeah. you know, avoiding uh, refined grains, avoiding sugars, and eating good quality protein and lots of vegetables. I mean, that essentially is what it was. So the so okay so our right now the dietary recommendations are or the requirements are at breakfast you you must take a grain. And then, and then you can take either another grain or a fruit or a milk or a protein. And so what you're saying is actually there's probably something inverse that should be happening there if we want to be feeding our kids yeah. the best, the best food, the most appropriate food for the way that our bodies actually metabolize food. Actually, yeah. If you look at, for example, whole grain, it's, it's a big con. Mm. So if you look at flour products, whether it's whole wheat or white flour, yeah. They're finely ground and they raise your blood sugar more than table sugar. So you literally could take 
two tablespoons of table sugar, put on your sandwich fixings, and it'll be better for you than putting two slices of whole wheat bread. And why and is by that? By the way, because the information in the food, the quality of the food is different. Mm. So when you look at the way we measure uh, what we call glycemic index of the food, that's how much a particular food raises your blood sugar. Whole wheat bread and white bread are worse than table sugar. <laughs> now, oh, now, if you make a bread out of wheat berries that aren't ground, then you yeah. can make nut and seed breads that are fine. That's one thing. But most of the whole wheat bread is essentially uh, a highly processed refined product with 51% whole wheat in it, which is also finely right. ground. The rest of it can be white flour. And, and it allows, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, right. whole grain cookie crisp cereal, which has like five teaspoons of sugar, uh, and it's a, quote, whole grain heart healthy product. Uh, it's kind of ludicrous. And you're saying the sugar is probably the healthiest part of that. I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> not really, but but it's, it's like, j- and then what they do is they, they, you know, they put tons of sugar and stuff. And then what they've found how to do is they, they since sugar has, uh, since the most prominent ingredient has to be listed first on the label, they'll put in five different kinds of sugar so they don't actually have to list it as the number one ingredient, even right. though it is. Right, 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 right. Now, okay, now tell me, so for, for lunch, um, the requirement to receive the subsidy is that you must be served at least three out of the five um, lean meat or a meat alternate, vegetable, fruit, milk, and a grain. And so I guess I have two questions. One, so if, if you were, if every child as they're going down the line was sit, looking at you and saying, Dr. Hyman, what should I eat today to keep myself healthy? What would you, what combination of those things would you have them eat and then the second question okay. I have is, is specifically about milk. So let's 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 go to the first question first. Well, I, I'd have them eat what you guys make at the My Way Cafe, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, which is, which is actually within the guidelines. But swapping out the right foods for the wrong foods, so that you actually—I mean, swapping out the wrong foods for the right foods, so you actually get better information, right? So you can have a grain that's like a whole grain uh, brown rice mm-hmm. or you can have a whole grain that's highly processed flour with sugar in the bread that mm-hmm. is basically candy. Um, or you can have, you know, a meat that's a highly processed hot dog or pepperoni with who knows what in it, or you can have, right. you know, grass fed steak, right? right. Which has a different quality and properties or you can have, refined oils that are extremely toxic or you can have olive oil and they're very different even though they're they're both fats or both proteins or both carbohydrates right um and i i think you know so i think i think it's really uh i need need to focus on quality and the scientific revolution which is that food is medicine and that if you use the right foods you can literally help these kids brains work better help them lose weight help them focus have them have more energy uh, and actually help them succeed in life. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about how food relates to health. So I can tell you, and this is just anecdotally, although we are going to um, do some studies around it, when, when My Way Cafe, which like you said, is is whole real foods being served down a line for students every day and they make choices. Um, the the teachers and the principals, I would say two or three weeks in as we go in to check on how things are going, they'll say to us, that 
the behavioral rates, um, discipline rates have gone down in, in schools. And so we actually are going to do some um, work to make sure, you know, to see if that's in fact true. But, but anywhere you go, teachers will pull you aside and say this. And so can you talk about the effects of food and different types of food on health issues like ADD and ADHD and depression and anxiety and all of these behavioral um, and mental health issues that we are you know, so concerned about in our schools, but we're, I don't know that we're looking at food as an anecdote for those things and, and, uh, or an antidote for, as, for those things. What, what do you think about that? And, and can you talk about the connections between the two? Absolutely. I, I think it's really underappreciated the role of food in mental health and cognitive function, behavior. And when you look at the data on these kids, um, what happens is they all are often malnourished. They have low levels of omega-3s. They have low levels of zinc, of iron. And there's this huge amount of educational inequities that are resulting from this. You know, uh, like I said, one in six kids has some neurodevelopmental disorder. One in 10 kids has ADD. Uh, you know, kids, school nurses have to deal with boxes of prescription meds that they dole out every day. Uh, when you look at academic performance in poor neighborhoods, you know, it's, it's worse when you look at the poorest kids who have the worst diets, their brain sizes are 10% lower and their average IQ points are seven points lower. Wow. Um, and yeah. And, uh, and they are also, you know, is, is this sort of lack of fresh fruits and vegetables, uh, and lack of whole foods. Uh, and they, that results in more inattention, disruptive behavior, absenteeism. It's unbelievable. So, it's unbelievable. And then talk about too, the ties to the, rates of the crazy rates of growth in diabetes and obesity. Yeah. Before, before I jump to that, I just want to talk about something that's really compelling around okay. the nutrition of these kids and behavior. And then I'll get to the diabetes. You know, there have been controlled experiments in prisons with violent youth, um, showing that by simply giving them a multivitamin, you could reduce violent crime by 37% giving them fish oil and a multivitamin. Really? Um, and that the author of the study said that a bad diet is now a better predictor of future violence than past violent behavior. And, and that, you know, uh, another study showed that, you know, kids given a vitamin and mineral supplement reduced violent crime by 91% compared to a control group. And these kids were deficient in magnesium, iron, B12, folate from eating junk food. Wow. Uh, their brain, their brain function was measured by EEG and they had abnormal brain function and it was better after the supplementation. Uh, and they showed in another study that looked at uh, violent prisoners in prisons and they mm -hmm. gave them a healthy diet. Just by giving them a healthy diet compared to the control group, they reduced violent crime by 56%. And they gave them a multi, they reduced it by 80%. So what are the implications of that? Um, you know, uh, in one study and another study with kids, when they replaced snack foods with healthier options, and got rid of all the sugar and junk. Uh, in a 12-month follow-up, there was a 21% reduction in antisocial behavior, 25% reduction in assaults, 75% reduction in the use of restraints in school, and 100% reduction in suicide, which is important because suicide is the second leading cause of death in kids from 10 to 19. So, right. um, and it's just increasing. So the data is really there. This is not just, oh, you know, that's just a kind of a, you know, anecdote that kids are bad, badly behaved or they can't learn when they're eating junk. It's well documented by the science. So that's a big problem. And then, of course, you've got the weight issues where 40% of kids are overweight. And that's, that's 
a real issue because if you're overweight when you're a kid, your life expectancy is 13 years less. The cost to you in terms of suffering, lack of productivity, contribution to society uh, is dramatic. And, mm. and of course, the the cost of the healthcare system and and the lack of you know these kids you know uh, ability to actually even uh, you know succeed is huge. And and we're facing a national security crisis because these kids are often. Uh, unfit to fight and 70% of military recruits literally get rejected from military service because they're too fat or unfit to fight. 70%? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. Um, That's there's a crazy. whole report by, by generals looking at this as a national crisis that we need to get our kids healthy again so we can actually have national security. So what's interesting to me though about, about all of these things that you're saying is that you, it seems to be reversible. So the the example where you gave, where if you if you give kids with violent behavior fish oil and a multivitamin, it starts to de- decrease that behavior. And so, how how much of what is going on do you think is reversible, and and how much how much do folks have to change in terms of what they're eating in order to to start reversing things. It's a, and, and the reason I ask the question is I feel like as, as we roll out, you know, this new school food program with food nutrition services, the biggest competitors to the school food program seem to be, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, you know, where kids are bringing it in, um, and maybe also eating at school, but they, or they're bringing in McDonald's or because they're allowed to go off campus or bring in bags of chips from 7-Eleven. And so what, you know, can you see effects by feeding students, by students eating more good food, even if they're also eating bad food? And, and you know, how, how, much, how much do they need to change and how quickly in order to reverse what's going on? Well, yeah, obviously, um, obviously it's, a, it's a continuum, right? Any little bit of change is going to help. Uh, and the more change is going to help more. So the more you can shift kids towards nudges and healthy behavior, the better they do in every aspect socially, behaviorally, academically, uh, physically from their health point of view. So the more you can move kids in the right direction, is it's important. But what happens in schools is that 50% of schools have name brand fast food companies providing food on school lunch lines. Whether it's, you know, Taco right. Tuesday from Taco Bell or right. McDonald's Mondays or Burger Domino King Fridays pizza. or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is and, crazy. You know, Domino Pizza created a smart slice pizza, which right. is essentially junk by putting right. a couple of vegetables on it, and then spent, gave the school district $8 million, I think, in Texas to, to get this on their on their school lunch thing. And it's it's really criminal. And I think that the more we can nudge kids in the right direction, it's great. But if you have what we call competitive foods, well, listen, if you're going to serve a kid a cookie or an apple, what do you think he's going to go for? <laughs> I mean, it's right. a cookie, right? right. So you, you can't, schools should be safe zone. And in Chile, uh, in many other countries, they literally have created a ban on anything that's not health promoting in mm-hmm. Mexico and Chile because the amount of of junk in the schools is driving so much uh, disability kids, so much cost in society that these countries have said enough is enough, and they literally eliminated. It. In fact, you know, they've eliminated advertising and marketing of these foods, mm-hmm. uh, and they've killed all the cartoon characters on all kids' foods. You can't market right. any junk food between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. Right. And you, you have to remove Tony the Tiger from the, you know, <laughs> from right. the cover of the box and all that. 
Can we talk about sugar? Because th this one gets me a little bit that there's it's a highly regulated industry, the school food industry, and um, there's no regulation on sugar. Right. And so it can, go in, it can go into the proteins, it can go into the starches, it can go into the grains, it quite honestly can go into the vegetables and fruit. And um, what, do, what do you think about that? Like if, if you were to make any changes in the way the subsidy gets paid out, should, we, should there be a regulation around sugar? Well, I think we should do two things. One, we should eliminate the requirement for milk because there's no evidence that it's necessary and much evidence that it's harmful. And second, based on the data on sugar, and sugar-sweetened beverages in particular, even chocolate milk, which is mm -hmm. the way to get the kids to drink milk, right. is the number one driver of obesity. So there's really no, no scientific debate about this anymore. I think, you know, why is there political debate? Because of that's an interest in Washington that drive policy, but it's not, it's not a scientific question. Hmm. You know that your milk point, that's the most exp expensive component of the, of the meal also. Yeah. Significantly more well, expensive, even than the meat requirement. Yeah. Well, the dairy council is super powerful. I mean, most people don't realize it, but those got milk ads yeah. were part of this program called the Checkoff Program, which is a partnership between the USDA, Department of Agriculture, and the dairy industry. And their goal is to promote agricultural products as the USDA, regardless of any connection to health. And the got milk ads went for a long time and made all kinds of health claims that were actually uh, finally called out by the Federal Trade Commission and said, this is untruthful advertising. You need to stop those ads because they were not actually proven. And hmm. Drs. David Ludwig and Walter Willis from Harvard had published a, a editorial in JAMA Pediatrics a number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I heard through personal communication, they're writing a very comprehensive piece that will be published soon, really challenging the notion that one, Americans should drink three glasses of milk a day and the children should drink two glasses of milk because when you look at the data, one, 75% of the population is lactose intolerant. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. And, and uh, in our schools, right, like I had a, a young woman who is African-American come to me and said, we're so thankful now that we're serving food a different way because she said, quite honestly, there was dairy in almost everything that we were being served prior. And she said, myself and so many of my peers are lactose intolerant. We couldn't eat it without getting sick. Yeah. yeah. Right. And then on top of that, it's a big driver of allergies, um, eczema, even autoimmune disease, type 1 diabetes, uh, digestive disturbances. And it's also been linked to cancer, prostate cancer. Uh, it's not shown to proven at all in any way to reduce fractures. In fact, it may increase the risk of fractures. So I think we're really, we kind of have to, you know, take a step back and go, why is this so? And it's so because we've really been um, having our dietary guidelines driven by uh, money, not science. And this was called out by the uh, National Academy of Sciences recently when they reviewed the dietary guidelines process. Also, the, <clears throat> the new dietary guidelines committee, 13 of the 20 members are highly conflicted according to uh, recent review. And, you know, the, the person who was in charge of overseeing the guidelines was, was actually a former employee and lobbyist for this Corn Refiners Association of America, the makers of high processed corn syrup and the Snack Food Association. Uh, right. And she had to get a special waiver from McGann, from the White House lawyer, to be able to actually take the position because she was so conflicted. So it's just a cesspool of, 
of conflict of interest that is driving recommendations that have nothing to do with science that are harming our children. So what, but how, would you hold out hope for that? Like it's because it seems to me like if all of those things are true and money and big um, food companies are not going away, then the only way to counterbalance that is that every consumer kind of has to act on their own. And, and I guess, you know, we have to do things like what's going on in Boston where, you know, a group of um, adults and, and, you know, the mayors running the city have decided we're going to feed kids a different way and, and help guide choices that way. But it seems like it has to be very grassroots if, if what's guiding the requirements and the recommendations is, is so blemished by well, I mean, or biased. Yeah. I mean, to a, to a degree, but I also think that, that, you know, we can't put it on the average person. We, we all can take responsibility in our own lives. We can all make choices that shift things. We can all do what you did and start initiatives in our schools and do those things that are really going to move the needle in our community. And we can make our homes a safe zone and we can do all those things. But it turns, if we, if we abdicate our ability, not just to vote with our fork, but to vote with our vote, then we're abdicating, you know, what's really a critical part of American democracy, which is a participatory democracy. And there's a group called the Food Policy Action Network that has mm-hmm. uh, created a, basically a database of every single member of Congress and their voting records on food and food issues. And you can see which ones are voting the way you like and which ones aren't. And, and people's voices matter because they, there were two of them that were highly conflicted and, and, uh, promoting policies that were quite harmful. And they were singled out by the Food Policy Action Network. They acted in a social media campaign and they, and they removed them from office. Oh, um, interesting. So, yeah, I think, you know, we have to sort of be loud and vocal with our congressmen and senators and our state representatives and things can change. I mean, I just was working with a state legislature in Ohio and we got, you know, money for a food pharmacy and money for addressing social determinants of health or Medicaid. So there is the opportunity if you actually are, are willing to do something, you can you can make a difference. That's interesting. So so okay, so what are what are what do you think the one or two thing key things we should all be doing right now then to help kind of re um, reorient um, consumer eating habits around fresh, whole, real, healthy food? Well obviously Everybody can make their home a safe zone. Everybody can be advocates in their own family, in their workplaces, in schools, uh, and in their faith-based communities. That's really important because that's where health happens, and and it can it can happen. I mean, I was in Saddleback Church where we got this church that was severely overweight. I mean, the average weight for women was 170, and the average weight for men was 210. Uh, and we they were having pancake breakfast and ice cream socials. And, uh, we basically went in there and, and with the support of the pastor, we were able to completely remove all the junk from the the congregation and get them to start eating healthy food. They lost a quarter million pounds in a year. So things can happen. Right. I think from a political point of view, I think we can all be more conscious of our voices and how to use them in, in the process of, of um, actually uh, – reaching out to our representatives and, and letting our voice be heard about things that matter to us. And the Food Policy Action Network makes it really easy and, and, and be able to communicate with your and find out who your representatives are. So I think that being active in that way is really important. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. And then because you kind of look at the world from both sides, from health healthcare perspective and from a food perspective, what, what are your thoughts on those two, you know, is the... Are those two industries talking to each other? 
you know, if, if we're really trying to solve this massive budgetary issue we have in that more and more of our uh, state and federal budget dollars go into taking care of s Americans because they're sick, is there any finger pointing or collaboration happening with the food industry to say, hey, you know, if we were all eating better, we might be lowering health costs? Do those yeah. conversations happen? Absolutely. I mean, I was just at a food policy conference in Boston, and you know, there were leaders from industry there. I'm going to a meeting in a couple of weeks in Washington at the Milken Conference with all the food leaders, and everybody's talking about this. And I think, you know, whether it's it's you know the the, the, the now the 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 um, food company is basically withdrawing from the grocery manufacturers of America, which was a probably the worst actor in the food space, promoting and obstructing money policies that you know, protected the status quo and opposing any policies that threatened the status quo, um, whether it was driving, you know, uh, driving, um, you know, preemptive taxes against soda or anti-GML labeling or whatever, big companies pulled out, Campbell's, uh, Nestle, Unilever, Danone, Mars, and others pulled out because uh, they felt that, those, that that organization wasn't representing the needs of the consumers and the interests of the consumers, and they were obstructing policies that could move things forward, even if they weren't, you know, perfectly going to protect their their interests. They realized this was needed to be done, and so I met with you know top management and leaders and CEOs of some of the major food companies, and they they're not dumb. They they understand there's a shift in tide, but they understand that they have legacy products that are not promoting health, and they're they're shifting them. I just met with Denise Morrison, who was the former CEO of Campbell's and she removed all the GMO from her food. She got rid of all processed ingredients, but you know, it was tough because you know, the, the you know, right. Campbell's soup is like, <laughs> who's buying Campbell's soup anymore? Right. So, right. And is there is this whole notion of, um, is that a talk this summer where Bill Gates was talking about overnutrition, which I think also is malnutrition, right? Those, those things are, mean the same thing. And, and it, it seems like in this country, malnutrition, because of all of the things that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast are actually tied to obesity and, and, and potentially the um, crisis around diabetes is, can you talk a little bit about that? Cause it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it could be true that in America we would have a malnourishment problem, but it, but it, it is in fact the case, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's manifested in a couple of ways. You know, we think when people are overweight, they're overnourished, but they're actually overfed and undernourished. Mm. And as I mentioned before, we see widespread nutritional deficiencies in these kids. I mean, you probably heard about that case of that kid who lived on Pringles and French fries and he got blindness. From yeah, him, yes. Right? Because he was eating food that had no nutrients but lots of calories. Right. And, and so we do see about 90% of Americans deficient in one or more nutrients at the minimum level. And part of the obesity epidemic is driven by the fact that, that the body craves nutrients. So in order to try to get more nutrients, the increase hunger increases and people crave more. So I think that's, that's something that people really don't appreciate. So we're, we're, we're eating foods that make us eat, 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 but have no nutrients and we become increasingly nutritionally deficient. Right. And when you see people coming in for bariatric surgery or kids are coming in with obesity, these kids are malnourished. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of like a double burden of malnutrition and obesity. 
You know, if that's the case, because you know, when I go, when I go to the doctor, when my kids go to the doctor, we're all asked about smoking and and whether or not we use drugs. What, why aren't we asked what food do do we eat as part well, of like really our simple. just the intake? Doctors don't learn about food and don't understand that food is medicine and don't connect the dots between food and health in any meaningful way, other than if you eat too much, you get fat, right. which is actually not even true. Right. You eat too much of the wrong stuff you do, but you can eat as much as you want of broccoli, you're never going to get fat. <laughs> so, Interesting. Uh, 400 cups of broccoli, good luck with that, but you're not going to gain weight. Okay. Uh, and I think that the doctors really unfortunately are are um, uh, poorly trained and very ill-aware of what the role of food is in health, both in terms of promoting health and reversing disease. And it just seems to me, though, if we did have that intake, you know, if you had that data and then you had the um, disease data to combine, you would st- there would just it would be able to draw many more correlations more quickly than we can today. Yeah, I know. Okay, sure. so here's here's my last question for you because we have so the way it breaks down um, with the USDA subsidy. So, for example, there's three dollars and forty five cents for every meal that um, gets taken. Um, for lunch, and there's a little bit less than that from breakfast, and so a lot of that because we're cooking at each kitchen, it goes to labor, and we have about a probably two dollars to spend on, per child on the food that we serve during breakfast and lunch. So, and given yeah. given that rolls up right to fifty four thousand kids, so we can buy in quantity. If you were if you were building out the menu, and I know you're a great cook, um, what 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 ingredients? What would you spend the two dollars on for breakfast and lunch? And it's and it all well, and there's no labor in that, just just the food, just the ingredients. I think with you know, there's there's fascinating programs just in terms of driving down costs of real food is cutting out the middleman because what happens is a tremendous amount of processing that goes into food is all these intermediate companies. But there are actually uh, companies now that are aggregating local producers and farmers, you can buy directly from the farm, which allows you to have much more fresh fruits and vegetables and, and high quality protein and other things that are, are often prohibitive, but actually can be affordable if they're, if they're done in the right way. So it's more of a business innovation around how we can shift distribution in terms of what kids should eat. I think having, you know, um, things that are, uh, sort of no go right in the school lunches. We know that, that refined oils, uh, cause homicide, suicide and behavior issues. Mm-hmm. We know that sugar creates behavioral issues and overweight and obesity. So really limiting those things. We know that additives and colors and dyes tend to promote more ADD. So we get rid of all the things that are non-food. That would be the first thing. Mm-hmm. And the second thing would be to you know, include fruits and vegetables, more fruits and vegetables, not as French fries and pizza, which are the number one and two, right. or ketchup, which is the number one and two vegetables. But, you know, as more whole food vegetables and lots of colorful variety, I think including, you know, more nuts and seeds in food, including more whole grains and beans is great. I think including high quality animal protein is is important. And I think there is the ability to do this. Uh, You know, this friend of mine runs the Academy uh, for Global Citizenship, which is in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and she worked with the Chicago City school system and the food service providers for them to create whole food meals within the school lunch budget that kids would love. And I visited the school and these were kids who were children of immigrants who were very poor, who were, you know, Latino or or African-American 
and they were these little kids were sitting around eating the most you know amazing foods and they they were just chowing it down yeah. which was just all and i was like no, and i sat so down beautiful. with this one kid it was like third grade i'm like what's your favorite food like broccoli pizza and i'm like okay <laughs> you know it's like it's yeah. totally so amazing. I think it's, okay. it's possible and it can be done and i think you've shown that that's true i think that and i think more people need to realize that that argument is actually not true yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think I think when you get when you get it back, when you dial it back down to whole real ingredients, it's actually much less expensive. It's all of the packaging and processing and the transportation, logistics and labor costs, you know, somewhere else mm-hmm. away from you that that make um food more expensive. But when you just boil it down to simple ingredients, it um which are obviously much healthier for you. Um it's yeah. actually a pretty it's pretty you have actually a pretty big budget to spend. Um, so you have you have a new cookbook coming out. Is that the What the Heck Should I Cook? Yes, food, What the Heck Should I Cook. Which and when is that coming out? October 22nd. Okay. We'll have to pick up a copy of that. Um, is there anything I missed? Is there anything else you, you want to mention about kids and food? I think, you know, one of the things that, that, that I think people need to realize is that you need to start young. And, you know, I remember when I was raising my little children, I had them in the kitchen cooking with real food. I, I grew a garden with them, you know, we grew Brussels sprouts. My daughter actually binged on Brussels sprouts and got so sick from <laughs> too many of them. You know, well, what, what two-year-old loves Brussels sprouts? Well, kids will eat whatever their parents feed them if they don't have other options. And I think in most countries, there is no kids' menu, right? There's no right. kids' food like Lunchables and Go-Gurts. It's this whole right. category of foods that are highly processed, highly addictive, that get kids hooked early and keeps them hooked and sick for life. And, right. you know, in Japan, kids eat raw fish and seaweed, right? right? They're two years old. That's what they're eating, you know? Right. And in this country, we think we have to have kids' menus and kids' lunches and kids' uh, food. And I think that's one of the real tragic things. And I, I think by feeding your kids real food at home, take a little bit of effort, but it's, it's really powerful. Um, you can actually, you know, transform, uh, your kids lives, real life and actually make it really great. Yeah. I agree with you. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today, Mark. I really appreciate it. Mm, happy. You're, you're doing amazing work and, uh, you really are a model for what every parent should be doing is getting out there and helping their kids and their schools and their communities to, you know, live better lives and solve the problems that are out there. Cause if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. I agree. I agree. Well, I learned a lot from you too. So I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Mark Hyman. His latest book, what the heck should I cook has just been released. And his latest work, which he considers the most important book he has ever written, is called Food Fix, How to Save Our Health, Our Economy, Our Communities, and Our Planet One Bite at a Time. will be released on February 25th, 2020, and you can pre-order that on Amazon right now. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.